Hey there, Crimaholics. Welcome back. It is your host, Kenzie. I'm here with another Missing Mondays episode. Missing Mondays is a segment that was created because at any given time, 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. While some of them are found alive or deceased, the majority are still missing today. It is my goal here at Crimeholics to keep missing persons' name and information in the media to aid in their return home the best that I can. On this episode of Missing Mondays, I will be bringing you the disappearance of Stephen Earl Kraft Jr., a 12-year-old boy who went missing from Benton Heights, Michigan in mid-February of 2001. He went out to spend some time with his dogs outside in the neighborhood to never be seen alive again. Stephen Earl Kraft Jr. grew up in Benton Township, Michigan. His family, friends, classmates, and teachers described him as a quiet but very intelligent boy who was friendly with everyone and excelled in his studies at school. Growing up, Stephen was called Stevie by his friends and family since his father went by the name Stephen. Stevie had a close relationship with his older sister Jody, who lived just around the corner from his home. During Stevie's free time, he would walk with his dogs down to Jody's home and spend the day playing with the dogs and his nephew. Most of the time when Stevie would spend the day playing at Jody's house, he would often be invited to stay for dinner. On February 15th, 2001, Stevie was home with his mother instead of being in school. Five days prior to the 15th, Stevie had gotten suspended from school for getting into a fistfight with another boy. After his five-day suspension, he was set to return to school on the 16th. According to the principal at Hull Elementary where Stevie attended, he was not a troubled child and had been an, an excellent student. On the day of the fight, Stevie had been being bullied by another boy who hit Stevie first and he was merely just trying to defend himself. The principal continued on to say that per the school policy, even though Stevie was just defending himself, he had to serve a five-day suspension as well. With the 15th being the last day of his suspension, Stevie wanted to go spend some time outside playing with his dogs before having to return to school the next day. Stevie was well known in his neighborhood on Holly Drive in Benton Heights for playing outside with his dogs. During this time, Stevie had a German Shepherd chow mix and a German Shepherd puppy. Sometime around 6.30 p.m. that evening, Stevie's mom was making dinner, and Stevie informs her that he's going to go outside and play with the dogs, and he will return later that evening. But Stevie is never seen alive again. A few hours later, around 9 p.m., Stevie has still not returned home, but his mother doesn't think much of it because she just assumes that Stevie is around the corner at his sister Jody's and has decided to eat dinner there instead of eating at home. His mother phones Jody to check on Stevie, but Jody informs her that he never came by the house and she has not seen him at all that day. With a bad feeling in her stomach, she sends her husband Stephen out to look for their son. Stephen runs into a neighbor who says they saw Stevie head towards the field near their home on Holly Drive with the two dogs, but that was the last time the neighbor had seen him, which was around 6.45 p.m., just shortly after the original time Stevie had left his house. With his neighbor being the only person who saw Stevie that evening and the temperature dropping quickly, Stephen and his wife call the Benton Heights Police Department and tell them that their son never returned home. Due to his young age and the decrease in the temperature, the police knew that they had to take the situation seriously and time could be running out for Stevie to be found alive. 
As the search begins for Stevie and his two dogs, his father Stephen and the police first start searching the wooded areas near their home. In the wooded area just two blocks away from where the Kraft household is, they find what looked to be paw prints and boot prints that were believed to belong to Stevie and the dogs. They begin to follow the footprints, but they begin to quickly fade away. The footprints in the snow were located near the Harbor Haven Ministries building, which just behind this building is the wooded area where the footprints started to fade. His father worried that Stevie may have gone into the woods and fell on the snow and may not be able to make it back home. However, the feeling faded rather quickly when Stephen knew that his son would have likely unleashed one of the dogs for them to run back home and alert him or his wife. The late night search for Stevie has now continued through the night with his family and police fearing the worst as the temperatures continued to drop. His mother confirmed to the police that when Stevie had left their home around 6.30 p.m. earlier that evening, he had not worn a hat or gloves and only wore a small jacket, making their feelings of fear even stronger. It is now the morning of the 16th and there is still no sign of Stevie within an 8-mile radius of his home. With no signs of Stevie, the police are starting to come up with a theory that maybe Stevie is a runaway. His parents are heavily upset at this accusation because they know their son well and he has no reason to run away from home at only 12 years old. Stevie had a good home life and he was close with his family and never showed any signs of being in distress. It would be highly out of his character for him to run away from home. With no leads or signs of Stevie and it being over 12 hours since he first disappeared, the police head over to Hull Elementary School to question Stevie's teachers and classmates. Each one of his classmates and teachers all had the same things to say about Stevie, that he was a really great student and he excelled in school. It was not until police questioned the whole elementary school principal, Leo Coleman, that they find out that Stevie had recently been suspended for fighting in school. After receiving this information from the school principal, the police begin to believe that their theory about Stevie running away might just be plausible. They believe that Stevie may have run away from home so he would not have to return to school the following day. But the principal informs them that Stevie was not at fault for this fistfight. They explain that Stevie was being bullied and the other student was the first one to throw a punch and Stevie was just trying to defend himself. He further tells them that Stevie is a great student who is well liked by his teachers and peers. There is no reason for Stevie to run away to avoid going to school. He also tells him that he is fully aware of Stevie's home life and he is well taken care of by his family and reiterates that there is no reason for Stevie to run away. Now the police are left feeling that their theory was incorrect and believe something bad has happened to Stevie. Their theory about him being a runaway continued to fold when the police did a search of Stevie's bedroom and saw that not a single one of Stevie's belongings were missing. If a 12-year-old boy is going to run away from home in the middle of winter, there is no way he is just going to leave empty-handed. After the police ditched their theory of Stevie being a runaway, they head back into their neighborhood on Holly Drive to question neighbors who were in the neighborhood that evening. While going door to door, one of the neighbors says that he believes that he had seen Stevie get into a red Toyota sometime that evening around 7 p.m., but he did not get a good look at the man driving the red Toyota. Stephen right away does not believe the neighbor saw Stevie get into the vehicle because he knows his son. He knew that Stevie, one, would never just willingly get into a vehicle with a complete stranger, and two, the dogs would have been with Stevie. 
Stephen's intuition about this was right because shortly after the police were given this tip, they were able to verify the identity of the boy getting into the Toyota and it was not Stevie. The more the police questioned the community, more people stepped forward with information of possible sightings of Stevie. The kids in Stevie's neighborhood would often play inside the storm drains and they would crawl down into them and play games with the other kids all day. Now, as a mother myself, Hearing that had me thinking, my gosh, what the hell? Why are these kids climbing down into a storm drain and spending their day down there playing? But thinking back to my own childhood, there has been many times me and the other neighborhood kids had made risky decisions just like this. The neighbor tells the police that he had seen Stevie playing with the other kids in the storm drain and he had physically seen Stevie crawl down into the storm drain that evening. Again, my mom brain is thinking, how in the hell? But once again, looking back at my own childhood, these are the kinds of things that we did. And it makes me realize it is a very big possibility that Stevie did crawl down into that drain and maybe had gotten hurt. Police waste no time questioning the kids that were playing in the drain that evening to find out if Stevie had also gone down into the drain. The children questioned tell police that Stevie, in fact, did not come down into the drain and they had not seen him that evening. They make the conscious decision to not take the children's word for it and search the drain themselves. Despite having hopes they would find a trace of Stevie in the storm drain, there is nothing that leads them to believe that he was down in there at any point that night. The police have never given up the thought that it was a possibility that Stevie had been abducted. However, his dad, Stephen, thought otherwise. He said there was no way someone had abducted a 12-year-old boy and two dogs and not anyone saw a thing. But it's just that. Not a single person in the area saw anything suspicious or unusual on the night when Stevie went missing. Stephen held on to the theory that Stevie likely got injured while out in the woods and he was unable to make it home. With this theory being rather plausible, there is a true race against time because a major cold front moves in on the 17th, causing temperatures to drop well below 30 degrees, making it easy for hypothermia to set in. Due to the temperature dropping rapidly, law enforcement step up the search for Stevie and bring in search dogs and hope that they will pick up a scent trail that would lead them right to Stevie. Once the dogs are brought in, the dogs pick up Stevie's scent on Holly Drive, but the scent trail fades quicker than they had hoped it would right at the end of Holly Drive. The next location they take the dogs to is near the Harbor Haven Ministries building. While at the building, the dogs pick up another scent that takes the searchers to a pond that is located just behind the building. But again, the scent trail fades quickly. Because the scent trail ends right at the pond, the police take a closer look to see if there was any cracks or break in the ice. After taking a closer look, it was determined there was no way that Stevie had fallen into the pond as it was covered by a thick layer of ice and there was not even a small break. It is now Sunday morning and they are no closer to finding him than they were when he first went missing. The temperatures are continuing to drop as the days go on and hope that Stevie is coming home unharmed by the weather conditions or alive is starting to fade. But the police and the rescue team still continue to push forward. By Sunday afternoon, more than 100 people had been brought in to search another six-mile radius around the Harbor Haven Ministries building. People were on horseback, ATVs, and on foot. The six-mile radius was thoroughly searched without any success. 
Another night is upon the Kraft family without their son, and they have nothing but fear and panic that Stevie would not be able to sustain such temperatures if he was in fact outside somewhere. The afternoon turns into night when the Kraft family and the searchers find one thing they were looking for. The female German Shepherd Chow Mix that belonged to the Kraft family made her way back home all on her own, but without Stevie. The Krafts and the searchers were in complete shock when she appeared in the yard. Not a single person happened to see which direction she came from. She was thoroughly looked over, and although she was very cold and clearly was starving, there was no injuries to her body. However, Stephen did tell a local news reporter that the dog was very visibly anxious and scared. He stated that she would jump easily and cower down to the ground whenever she had heard a loud noise, and this is something that had never been done with her before. The police plan to use the dog in hopes that she will possibly be able to lead them to Stevie's whereabouts. Each time they would take her out, they would let her lead the way, and each time she would head straight to the Harbor Haven Ministries building, but head right back home. This particular area had been searched numerous times, but the police instruct the searchers to comb the area there multiple more times in case they have missed something, but again, nothing ever turns up. However, by Monday afternoon, while the searchers were out near the Blue Creek area that was within that six-mile radius, a puppy was found alive in the snow. The police had the crafts come out to the area where the puppy was found, and they quickly confirmed it was their German Shepherd puppy, Chopper. The Kraft family examines Chopper for injuries, but much like the other dog, she was completely unharmed. The Krafts take Chopper back to their home, and they stated that when they arrived, Chopper was in high spirits as if she had not been out in the freezing temperature for several days. The police heavily searched the area where the puppy was found, but again, there is just no trace of Stevie. We are now on day seven since Stevie has disappeared, and police receive a tip that may generate further information. Someone in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, had called into the tip line and said that they had seen Stevie in the local area just two days prior. Stephen, again, just did not believe that there was any accuracy in this tip because his son would just not run away. However, the Crafts did have family in the Milwaukee area, so police believe this could be a solid lead. The investigators over Stevie's case head to Milwaukee to question Stevie's family and to comb the area. Once they meet with Stevie's family and question them, they determined that Stevie had not been in contact with them in the last seven days. Police do still comb the area and ask the local community if they had seen Stevie, but like every other situation, there is not enough credible information to prove that Stevie was in the area or enough information to locate him, so they're back to square one. The end of February is now here, and over the last couple of weeks, police, the crafts, and search teams have put in endless hours searching every creek, crevice, ditch, pond, lake, barn, and shed within a 10-mile radius with no success at locating Stevie. Police are now ready to confront what they have been trying to avoid, accepting that Stevie likely did not voluntarily leave the area on his own. What was considered a search and rescue has now shifted to a kidnapping investigation. The Crafts had offered the public a $1,000 reward for any information pertaining to Stevie. Several tips were called in as they were hoping, but just like every other tip that was called in, they all lead to dead ends and no closer to bringing Stevie home. The local authorities, FBI, and the state police put forth their best efforts to locate Stevie in the weeks and months after his disappearance. But without any proper tips and evidence in his case, it has remained a mystery. 
In June of 2001, four months after his disappearance, when the weather was nice and warm, the FBI, state police, and the local authorities conducted several more searches within the six-mile radius search prior to see if anything had turned up once all the snow was gone. But again, nothing turned up, proving to them more that this was not just a kid missing out in the woods, but he was taken against his will. One month later, America's Most Wanted aired Stevie's story in hopes to gain national attention and hopefully drum up more tips, but nothing turned up, still leaving his case cold. Over the years, the police have done random searches, but nothing has ever come about. By 2005, the area near the Harbor Haven Ministry Building, the Crafts Home, and most of the wooded area had been torn down and eventually turned into the Southwest Michigan Regional Airport expansion. During the expansion, a runway was built and the workers had found what they believed to be a shallow grave and even found a small homemade wooden cross. Police told the workers to not touch a single thing and they would be out to investigate. When the police complete the search of the shallow grave, there was no human remains or no human belongings such as clothing and it was determined it was likely where somebody had buried their own pet. Since this time, there has been no new tips, but law enforcement says his case is still very much open and they are still begging for someone to come forward. Each year on Stevie's birthday, his family still celebrates with candles and a cake, and very sadly, in 2001, his dad Stephen passed away, never knowing what happened to his son. Stephen Earl Craft Jr. is missing from Benton Township, Michigan. He went missing on February 15, 2001. He is a Caucasian male who stood at 5 feet 2 inches tall at the time of his disappearance and weighed approximately 100 pounds at the time of his disappearance. He has sandy brown hair and green eyes. If you have any information regarding Stephen Earl Craft Jr., you are highly encouraged to call the Benton Township Police Department at 1269-926-926. 8221. Crimeaholics, if you haven't already, I highly encourage you to join a Crimeaholics podcast discussion group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. Or you are more than welcome to follow me personally at this is Kenzie, K E N Z I underscore, and Crimeaholics, once again, as always, be aware and take care. 